Welcome back to the Black Menace Podcast. I am your host, Rachel Weaver, and I am here with my other host. Nate Bird, happy to be on the show as always. Yes. Um, so, Nate, you're doing our uh, Menace moment today? I definitely am. We got a good one today. Like I oh. said, we've been putting in some effort to diversify uh, the menaces that we talk about. And so today we're going to talk about my man, Tecumseh. Have y'all ever heard of him before? No. no. Okay. So I had heard of him. I don't even remember when I did. I heard of him a long time ago. Um, I didn't really know much about him, but he was a Native American warrior. And I don't know if you could call it activist. I don't know if that was really a thing during the time, but I guess technically by today's standards, he might be considered like an activist. And uh, he was a Shawnee, American, Shawnee Native American chief. And he was born about 1768 in what is now Columbus, Ohio. Um, and during the 1800s, he attempted to organize a confederation of tribes to resist white settlement. Um, so <clears throat> when he was young, he kind of grew up amidst like the the colonial warfare that was going on. You know, there were um, white settlers and co- col- uh, colonialists, you know, coming in and trying to like take over that land. Um, and so a lot of that time um, was spent kind of fighting against, you know, like the French and things like that during the French and Indian War. And so his uh, his father was killed um, in the Battle of Point Pleasant during the French and Indian War, and his mother uh, left him to be raised by his older sister um, when she migrated to go to other Shawnees um, in Missouri. And so when he was a teenager, he joined a confederation of Native Americans led by Joseph Brandt, who was a Mohawk chief, um, and they pulled their resources to defend the territory that they uh, were on against white men. Um, trying to invade it and take over that land. And Tecumseh, as a teenager, led a raiding party attacking white settlers' boats um, on the Ohio River and was successful in cutting off their access to the Ohio River for a while. Um, but during that time, he saw a lot of brutality displayed um, towards both white people and Native Americans on both sides. And so um, after he saw a white man being burned at the stake, he actually chastised his tribesmen and encouraged them not to to act like that. Um, he didn't want them to act the same way that uh, that the oppressors were acting in this instance. Um, and then in 1791, he led a scouting party against um, the United States Army. Um, it was a battalion of a hundred, or I'm sorry, it was a battalion of a thousand soldiers. And out of those thousand American soldiers, 952 of them were killed by Tecumseh and his scouting party. Um, in Let's see. Then in 1794, he led an attack against another uh, branch or against another general, and he ended up losing in that battle. And he was so bitter about it that he didn't uh, attend any of the negotiations or anything like that. And he criticized the quote unquote peace chiefs who signed away land that he believed wasn't theirs to give. Um, He taught that uh, land was like air and water. It was a common possession of all Native Americans and shouldn't be sold or traded away. Um, in 1808, he, his brother had become, uh, like a significant religious leader in the Native American community and they called him the prophet and Tecumseh had, uh, I guess some really, really good public speaking skills. And so he used those skills to kind of turn the religious following into a political following. And he discouraged other Native Americans from assimilating into the white world. Um, and then let's see here, we'll skip ahead, a couple of my notes here. So let me see. In 1811, he uh, when Tecumseh was in the South, 
recruiting uh, other Native Americans to fight. Uh, who the then governor William Henry Harrison he later became president, and he actually that like, got his nickname from this battle. Um, but he fought against Tecumseh uh, in the Battle of Tippecanoe, and uh, ended up defeating Tecumseh pretty significantly. And I I had heard, I don't remember where I heard this, but I had, like read a book or something and talked about how William Henry Harrison had gotten the the nickname like Old Tippy Canoe or something because he won this battle. But now we know the other side of it. Um, and I think he only, I think he died like a month after he became president too. But uh, yeah. Okay. And then we see the last couple of things in the war of 1812. Um, Tecumseh fought with the British. Um, it was when the United States declared war on the British and Tecumseh and his warriors fought with the British um, in the siege of Detroit, um, to, and Tecumseh was actually quite the strategist. In this one, he had his warriors basically parade around in a circle in and out of the woods to make it look like they had a lot more soldiers than they actually did. And so uh, that that appearance of having a bunch of soldiers actually made the um, the American commander surrender before there was ever a battle fought. And then in spring of 1813. Um, Tecumseh was fighting with the British again, and uh, they fought against William Henry Harrison again. And during this one, um, Tecumseh only had about 500 men, and William Henry Harrison had 3,000 men. And so during that battle, um, Tecumseh was defeated and then also killed. Um, and his death, it says that his death marked the decline of Native American resistance in the Ohio River Valley. Um, and shortly after he died, Native American tribes were um, like moved west of the Mississippi River um, and kind of relocated onto reservations and things like that. So uh, his political leadership and um, you know the things that he did kind of helped turn him into like an American folk hero and a Native American hero and somewhat of an activist. So that is a little bit about my man Tecumseh, a menace. Uh, in the, during revolutionary times, I suppose. Mm -hmm. I, whenever I like learn about American history at all, I'm always like, dang, mm -hmm. I know nothing. Like I either know nothing or I've forgotten a lot of things like the war of whatever, 1812 or six, whatever that number is. I'm so sorry for the historians who are listening, but I don't know what that was about. And maybe I just need to pay better better attention in my U.S. history class, but my U.S. history teacher was also more like, she taught way more black history, That's which awesome. inherently isn't wrong. But um, yeah, I'm missing some key things, I think. And I'm like, wow, I need to catch up. Also, do they, um, is there like a Native American like AP history class? I've never heard of one. Okay. I feel like if there was one, it would probably, I know that like in Arizona, there's more of a focus on that. Okay. Like Arizona State has like a, they have like at the law school, they have like a whole Indian law program that you can like oh, wow. and stuff like that. Um, believe it or not, Kevin J. Worthen, that's actually what he studied at, at Arizona State. What? I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> the president he of studied... uh, he what? Studied, he studied Indian law at Arizona State. Yeah, yeah. I, I did not like know that. Thing. Yeah, I didn't know that either. But yeah, he told me that. And uh, yeah, interesting stuff. Mm. Wow. But yeah, but as far as like them having a class, I'm not really sure about that. Uh, and I just saw this post, somebody was like posting about them banning like some AP African American or something. Oh, yeah. And they Florida. like had a list or whatever. Yeah. So, you know, going crazy in the world once again. 
I just wanted to see if someone else knew about this because my high school had a lot of AP classes, but I didn't know that one. Mm-hmm. And we had like 27 or something. So I thought we had all of them. Good for y'all. Yeah. Okay. But cool. yeah. Well, before we go any further, we're going to go ahead and introduce our guest today. We got a great, um, we got a great episode of the podcast. So mm-hmm. really quickly, we wanted to introduce our guests. We got Antonia and Joshua on the show. Um, and they're going to be talking about some cool stuff with us. But let's see, Antonia, you want to introduce yourself first? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm Antonia. I am, also, I guess I'll start with like my childhood. I'm from this super small town in Illinois. It's called Ottawa. It's about an hour and a half away from Chicago. No one really knows about it, but it's okay. Um, and I have four, I have three sisters. Um I'm the third, so, and then I came to Brigham Young University. I'm studying global supply chain management here, graduating in a semester, hopefully. Introduce yourself a little bit. Yeah, so I'm Joshua Beecham. Um, I just recently graduated from BYU, actually. I studied experience design and management um, with minors in international development and sociology. Yes. Um, I currently work as an events and campaigns associate for a nonprofit here in New York City, where I'm living now. Um, and just kind of some of my background, I grew up outside of Houston, Texas, um, in a small town called Tomball. Um, no for all my Miami Heat fans out there, <laughs> that's where Jimmy Butler went to school. Um, it's our little claim to, flam- claim to fame. Um but yeah, I'm from a I'm from a pretty big family. Um, I'm number five of eight, so a little bigger than Tony's family. But uh, <laughs> who's counting? You know, giving LDS, but it's okay. <laughs> I'm like you're exactly. counting, Joshua. <laughs> exactly, I am counting. You're right. <laughs> oh man, oh man. Well, cool. Thank y'all so much for being on the show with us. And I, you know, it's no surprise to y'all, but the reason that we wanted to invite you on for our listeners. Um, is we we knew that you both had unique perspectives to share about growing up uh, biracial and then also navigating um, the environment that is BYU as a biracial person. Um, So just to kind of like jump right into it, um, growing up in your respective areas in Ottawa and Tomball, um, what was it like kind of growing up in those places? And then like, what was the family dynamic like as well? So, um, my town was about 18,000 people in the middle of a bunch of cornfields, and it was crazy. Like, there was zero Black people in the town, you know, it was, like, only white people the entire time. (laughs) I think in my high school, I had, like, two other Black people that I can remember, and so, yeah, so my sisters and I kind of had definitely a different experience, and I mean, and then I came to BYU, so, you know, how that was kind of similar environments, honestly. Um, I guess starting when I was growing up, it was just kind of, I mean, you know, how it always is when you're kind of one of the few in a town that's predominantly white. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of, I mean, honestly, when I look back at it, like from where I am at right now, I kind of felt like I was raised like in an environment that I didn't realize how much hate there was um just because I am like pretty lighter skinned I don't really I have blue eyes you know I didn't really see how much hate like even just my sisters got um from being darker than me and having you know darker complexion and 
Um, but then I got to high school and some experiences happened. And then even coming to be like coming to BYU, lots of things changed as I got older. Um, but I would just say, yeah, I was kind of blind for a large portion of my life, which is when like those kind of experiences happened. It was kind of like a slap in the face. You know, I didn't even realize how much hate exists and how much, you know, my culture like can be ignored and can like create an ignorance in me too. Very true. Thanks for sharing, Tony. I think, yeah, we've kind of talked about that before, um, but it's always just so crazy to realize, like looking back and, and being starting to realize what, like growing up, the different experiences you kind of had. I think, you know, as I think about what it was like growing up in Tomball, um, obviously being in the South and being so close to Houston, there were, there was a pretty good amount of Black people um, in my town growing up. I think what's still crazy though is like, it was so crazy to see how much racism was still like ingrained in our community. Mm-hmm. A few years after my family, a few years after or before my family moved to Tomball, there was a Klan rally that like marched through like downtown Tomball. It was crazy. And so I always heard about that growing up, like that, like just this idea that, oh, the Klan still exists and they're like they within the last 10 years have marched through town. Like that's why. <laughs> Um, like I think one of the other crazy like one of the good things though is I feel like my parents did a pretty good job at um, keeping us exposed to um, each side of the family Um, my mom is black my dad's white and we spent a good amount of time visiting each side of the family so even if I wasn't getting lots of exposure to black people in my community um, I was getting it at least on a family level you know at some at some degree um, black people and white people as well, right? Like I, I feel like the white people getting exposure to white people was pretty easy, just being, you know, around. But um, yeah, I think kind of like Tony said, there were definitely several experiences I had growing up, especially in high school, where I started to realize, like, oh, like my race actually affects me, and like on a personal level, and it's not just racism as a broad idea, but like it's affecting me personally, if that makes sense. That does make sense. I kind of have a follow-up question because you brought up the both sides of your family. So for both of you, um, if you don't mind me asking, like which which one of your parents is black, which one of them is white? Yeah, so my mom is black and my dad's white. Okay. Um, and I guess send us something to like know about too. My mom was actually raised in England. Oh, wow. Okay. So half of the half of my family that is black was kind of like an ocean away um and it's still an ocean away but <laughs> so it's just kind of something also affected that I didn't really think about till later on okay and what like what brought your mom to the United States or is she here at all or is she still in England with your or no I guess you grew up in Ottawa so yeah what brought your mom to the United States yeah my mom honestly I mean well she originally just came with a friend <laughs> she was just wanted she just came to the United States and then um she just stayed she was a convert of the Church of Jesus Christ. Oh. So she it kind of brought her here and then she went on and served a mission and everything. So there's a lot of things that brought her here and then that caused her to stay. Okay, gotcha. And then Joshua? Yeah, so like I said, my mom is black, my dad is white. Um, my mom is from Missouri and my dad is from Alabama. So we're pretty Southern. Mm-hmm. Uh, through and through um, both of them were converts though and my dad actually served his mission in in Missouri 
and that's how they met and then they both ended up moving to utah and then we moved to texas oh, after they, they moved to texas you know how it goes you know how it goes what do you mean what do you mean by one of those couples for the listeners <laughs> so in 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 mormon right. um, missionary culture there's kind of like a taboo with like meeting spouses or future spouses while you're serving your mission but it happens very often you know a lot of times a lot of times you know missionaries who serve in the same mission will will marry each other or they'll meet somebody in their mission and they'll go back to their mission like they'll go back to that state or that country um to marry them once they get finished serving um and so it's kind of like a running joke you know it's like a little bit taboo but also it happens so much that it's just kind of you know, accepted, but it, you know, you always, you can't, can't not crack a joke whenever you hear about it. So. My, my parents met on their mission too. So Tony was smart. She hid that piece of information. I hid it away for a second. Well, yeah. I mean, it's because you started when you're so young and mm-hmm. um, it makes sense and you get close to people. Oh yeah, so. absolutely. That's a time when most people would normally be doing other things besides serving the Lord. And so, right. Yeah, a little crossover there, I guess. So one of the reasons why we wanted to bring you guys on and talk about this is last week we were talking about Meghan Markle and Harry. I don't know if you guys are updated on them, but I watched their whole series on Netflix. Have either of you watched that? I've seen the first couple episodes so far. Joshua? Mm -hmm. You know, as much TV as I watch, I haven't gotten around to Harry and Meghan, but I'll add it to my list um, and it will get watched. Okay, it's a good one. Um, but in it, uh, Megan talks a lot about, you know, kind of her experience being a very fair skinned mixed race person, you know, being biracial, but she, I mean, she could pass for not being black a lot of her life, especially as she got older. And she talked about kind of how being a part of the royal family, she felt like she wasn't really treated like a black woman until she was in the royal family. And she, she's like, I never had these experiences until now and that was kind of like a new thing for her and I feel like also it kind of helped her to step into her racial identity more than maybe she had previously and so um, I was just curious like have you guys experienced anything similar to that do you feel like it was hard for you to step in your racial identity at all do you feel like if there were if it was like what challenges were there and like what influenced that and if it if it wasn't um then why wasn't it? You know, I'm just curious because every person I meet that's biracial has such a different experience and such a different path with what that looks like for them. And so I kind of want to hear what that experience was for you guys. Do you want to go first? You want me to? You got to right, you, go. you got to judge. Okay. <laughs> um, I've, I've thought about this a lot, so I don't mind going first and kind of explaining. I kind of view my racial identity, identity kind of in three phases, kind of just kind of based on the places I've lived the most of my life. I think growing up in Tomball, I almost exclusively referred to myself as half black um, or biracial, whatever you want to say. Um, and I think that was just kind of how I viewed myself, right? Like my mom was black, my dad was white. And so it just made a lot of sense to me to be like, yeah, I'm, I'm half black. Um, and I think it was really funny. I was actually going through my Facebook the other day, cleaning out old messages. And I saw a message from one of my friends he was joking with me back like this is a message from way long ago and he was like are you half black or half white and I thought it was really funny um he and I had that kind of relationship you know and 
you know, it made me think about it. And I was like, huh, why do I call myself half black versus half white? And I think that's something I really thought about for a long time. Um, and it kind of was just like this overarching question. I didn't really find the answer to for, for a while. Um, so the second kind of phase that I went into, I served a mission at, um, for the church in Mozambique and Swaziland. Um, that's in Africa for people that don't know. Um, and that was a really transformative experience for my racial identity in the sense that, you know, I went there feeling like, yeah, like I'm black. Um, but I would tell people that in Mozambique, like at other Mo like Mozambicans or, or Swazis, and they'd be like, no, you're American. Like, you're not black, you're American. And I'd be like, what, what do you mean? Like, I've had experiences as a black American. And they're like, it's different. Like, your experience of being black is different than my experience of being black. And to us, you're like the overarching experience we would identify you with is, is that of the American experience. And so that really made me think of, okay, what does it mean to be black to me? And do I have to defend my blackness to other people? And so that really just kind of had my wheels turning. And then from there, I moved back to the United States when I finished and I moved to Provo, um, which was a big culture shock, right? Going from being around black people all day, every day to, you know, seeing one to two, maybe three black people uh, at a day at BYU. That'd and be... yeah, I would count, you know, I usually, <laughs> I think on, on the best days I'd get up to like five maybe if I passed a table of black people at the not table, not the table, yeah, but, um, I think it was at BYU where I finally got the answer to that question that I was, you know, why do I call myself half black and not half white? Um, it was in a sociology class that I took and we kind of just talked about how a lot of your racial identity, um, has to do with the way that other people identify you and the way that other people treat you. Um, and so for me, it was, you know, like Meghan Markle said, right? Like she was never, she didn't see herself as black until she kind of entered into the royal family in this space where they othered her, right? And for me, it was, you know, growing up, I always identified myself as half black because that was the part of my identity that was getting the attention, right? Like I was being treated as black by so many people around me. Um, and so going to Africa and being treated differently made me think, whoa, hey, don't erase my blackness. Like this has been a part of me, even if I hadn't realized it, right? It, I got really defensive about that. Like, no, like that's a part of who I am. And so coming to BYU or going to BYU and it really helped me realize like, yes, I am biracial um, and like there's a lot of privilege and lots of other you know baggage that comes with that um but at the core i'm a black american right albeit albeit biracial the experiences that i've had are those that align with many many of the experiences that other black americans have and so i kind of took that and as i came to byu you know finished my coursework there graduated um it kind of my racial identity kind of cemented itself as a black biracial American, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. I love that. I love that. Makes a lot of sense. I like those stages too. It kind of reminds me of like the five stages of racial development, like a similar kind of thing. Tony, what you got? Um, I mean, so yeah, like I said, you know, I came from a predominantly white town. Um, and so that 
I mean, that was kind of, you know, everything I signed now um, from, I mean, I lived in that same town for 18 years. So I, and whenever my family didn't really have money to go visit my black family in England or um, so we would just come to Utah because that's where my dad's from. We would come to Utah for summer vacations. And so, you know, that was like, I didn't, and I didn't realize how um, much that kind of affected me, I guess, growing up um, just because I've never, I was never around black people. You know, I was never a thing I really thought about that. Like I wasn't, I didn't have this connection to my black side of myself until I got to college and, you know, then I started, I mean, literally when I came to BYU was when I started seeing like the most black people I'd ever seen in my life, which is crazy to think about, but right. it's honestly, like it's my reality. <laughs> but um, so honestly, I would say just when I was growing up, you know, I was kind of similar to Joshua. I'd always say, oh, I'm half black. Um, just because like that I mean, is exactly how it was. I was the one thing that like people, they knew I wasn't like fully white, <laughs> Um, and that was like the biggest defining feature of myself. Um, and I, but honestly, like I would say that and I wouldn't even, I wouldn't like connect to it. You know, I would just say like, oh, I'm half black. <laughs> um, but then I came to BYU and honestly, I, I didn't serve a mission. So I just came straight out of 18. Um, I've been here for the last four years. Um, honestly, the biggest thing that kind of had a transformation was a civil rights seminar trip that I took with Rachel and Joshua last year. Um, basically, we just went to a bunch of civil rights sites in Georgia and Alabama. And it, I mean, I would say it was my most transformational experience because I took this trip with several other Black students at BYU. And we had this class all semester and it kind of like made me start to realize like, oh, I have this connection to these people. Like I am, I, I actually am half black. Like that's actually like when I started to realize that. Um, and honestly, basically what I realized as the development of this course and this trip took place was that I had just been kind of holding myself back from accepting like who I am, you know, just, and not, and I say that in a way that uh, before I was always set, putting myself into this box, right? Like I was just, I am a half black person, but I don't know what that means. And what this trip kind of helped me to realize was that I know what it means because my identity is who I am. And it's not based on how other people perceive me or how other people, you know, like there's no like specific way I have to act specific thing I have to do because I am half black and half white like I just who I I'm just who I am and my race is what I what I am as well and I need to take pride of both of, of both of those things and so honestly it's been recent but it's been like the best kind of journey of me figuring out like my identity is what I am and I'm proud of that identity no matter you know and there's no specific set of rules that I need to follow to have that identity I hold I love that. If that made any sense, yeah. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. And like one thing that I had to realize um, that I didn't realize until I came to BYU is that there are different black experiences. Um, mm -hmm. I was still so busy trying to find my own experience and like figure out how I identified as a black person um, that I, I kind of put everybody into the same 
I don't know, idea of what like, it needs to be you doing. had, yeah, you had a narrow, like, so I don't know if I was like that, like, mm-hmm. I thought blackness had to look a certain way too, right. like experiences, personality, what you liked, everything. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, I didn't even fit my own view of what blackness was. <laughs> and so I was like spending time trying to like squeeze my way into that. And then I just had to realize, no, 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 it's okay if you like this. It's okay if you enjoy certain things um, because blackness is not a monolith, right? So um, it, it's been interesting to hear like different experiences and I appreciate y'all being on the show for sure. Um, so you kind of already answered this a little bit, but how would you say that you have fit in at BYU um, amongst like the general population, so to speak, and then in finding black community at BYU, has that been something you've been able to do? How was that experience? Um, because if we're being honest, black people at BYU are a little bit different, I found uh, some of them, or just like the overall. Maybe it's because there are so few of us, I don't know, but what has y'all's experience been fitting in with the general population of BYU? Um, like what kind of treatment have you experienced? And then among the black community at BYU, what have you experienced? Um, I think that's a really great question. Um, I think kind of going, starting off with, like you said, the general population. Um, I think one thing that happens a lot when, you know, you talk about race and your experience with racism at BYU is people are always like, oh, give me an, an instance, like give me an example of when people were racist to you. Mm. And something I always struggled with is that I didn't have many of those experiences. And I always credit it to the fact that um, I have a pretty good racism radar. Like I can tell pretty much the kind of people that I that are giving me, you know, racism vibes and I just stay away from them, right? And so I think I got really lucky in my BYU experience that I found a really solid group of friends my very first semester. Um, that really helped me feel included for who I was, you know, and helped me find, you know, my spot in, at BYU. Um, you know, as I branched outside of that group, it came a little, it came a little more difficult. Um, I think the campus community as a whole, um, almost every single year that I was there, there was some big incident of racism, mm-hmm. um, whether it be in a class, in you know, a forum setting. Um, on social media, whatever it was, there was almost always something that made me very hyper aware of the fact that even though I had this safe group of of people around me, that the community as a whole was not a very safe place, if that makes sense. And I think it wasn't until kind of like Tony said, um, when we took that civil rights seminar trip that I really began to start cultivating my own community of Black people um, at BYU. I I think mine started a little bit before that. um, And it's because of some of the Black friends that I made that I was able to, you know, find out about the seminar um, and have that experience. Um, But yeah, it really took me until my last semester at BYU to really have a solid group of, of Black people that I could really connect with at BYU. And I think one of the coolest things about finding that group is because we were in a seminar class, we were coming from all different parts of campus, right? Like we had students that were engineering students, political science, you know, theater and film. Um, Tony and I were in the business school. We were just all over the map. And so it really rang true to that point that you said, Nate, that like blackness is not a monolith. Like we were coming from so many different areas of campus. Mm-hmm. Whereas previously, like all the black people I had interacted with were like in the sociology department, right? <laughs> Um, that was mainly Rachel. <laughs> that um, 
but it was just really cool to see like us like doing all these different things and coming together around this you know shared experience um but yeah it was hard to find that collective group i think that makes a lot of sense what about you tony yeah so um i came to byu starting in 2019 so i was actually just like right before you know covid and Mm -hmm. then all that stuff so um honestly the first few years of my experience i did feel pretty isolated i actually remember my freshman year um i went well i didn't go but i walked past a black student union meeting and i looked through the doors and i was like i can't go in there like i don't look like anyone in there i'm not gonna fit and i have regretted that decision like every not i mean not my first few years but ever since that seminar trip happened I was just so mad at myself for like just not going in that room because something that that seminar trip did for me was kind of act as a catalyst to me realizing, you know, like there are amazing black people at school that I can connect with and have these great relationships with. Um, You just you literally you have to search for them like (laughs) and like to create that relationship. And so um, this past year has kind of just been. Um, you know, me attending more Black Student Union meetings, me um, participating in Perspectives, this is this event um, that kind of like cultivates around like Black excellence, Black history and everything um, to do with that. And so um, it's created, honestly, like once once I sought it out, I realized like the relationships you can have with that Black community is amazing. Um, But my first few years, I just remember myself relying on my family a lot, even because my sister was at school with me for the first year, Mm -hmm. which was really good for me. Um, just in that regard, just kind of getting used to what BYU was and, you know, every, every experience that I had with it. And then, yeah, then the next year we were all at home. So <laughs> here's much, <laughs> but that's kind of the experience I've had at BYU. Okay. That's interesting. I want to, you, you kind of talked about it a little bit, but I want to kind of dive into that. Cause you said you walked past a black student union meeting and you didn't feel like yeah. you would fit in there. Like what kind of like led to that? that feeling do you think and i know you said like it's that's changed since the civil rights seminar but what do you think it was that that brought that feeling on honestly i just it was actually i'm glad you brought that up because i thought about this a lot too about you know why it was almost like a fear of like oh i can't go in that room like i'm not going to be accepted um but you know i mean i thought about it a lot right it was right around um my first semester i think and it was kind of like kind of like ties into the idea of like where I grew up you know I was always surrounded by white people I almost and then I you know I almost like kind of just I'm not gonna say I forgot that I was half black but it was just something that I like didn't like realize was a part of me and then because I was never around black people and then all of a sudden there's this room full of black people and I kind of was just like, no, I'm not going to be accepted because I've never experienced this before, mm-hmm. which is, you know, like something. So, yeah, I'm, I'm just, honestly, it was a fear. Like, I'm not going to be accepted. And so I walked away and definitely not, not happy that I walked away. But but it was kind of something that I, like, realized once I had that seminar happen. I was just like, why? I don't know why I did that. I don't know why that was any, like, kind of thought that ran through my mind when that happened. That makes sense. That's really interesting. I think um, I've moved away from it, but I think when I was trying to find my black identity, 
um, I wasn't that honest with myself. Like for you, you were able to just be honest with yourself and say, you know, at this particular time in my life, I don't feel like I would fit in in this space. Um, but for me, I, 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 is that fair to say? Like, is that is that like a fair thing to say? Um, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. But, you know, for me, um, I feel like I was like, I'm going to force myself into this space no matter how much like I don't fit in here. Um, and so it was like, you know, different journeys for both of us. Right. But for me, like even to this day, there are some things where, you know, technically, if, if I had a black card, it would absolutely be revoked. Like I've never seen the color purple. I don't ever like I don't know. Maybe I'll watch it one day. But, you know, like things like that, where it's like things is like if you don't do this, you're not black, you know, in like the, you know, the the, the joking sense or the cultural sense or whatever. There's a lot of those <laughs> things that to this day I still haven't done. Um, and it's just kind of funny to think about, like, the things that that you think matter about being a black person. And you find out that everybody is so different and everybody has such a unique experience and kind of like bringing everything together is what makes that collective experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And something I just wanted to add um, that not being biracial, but be having friends who are, you know, biracial or just like having friends who were raised in, you know, predominantly white environments, even if they are fully black, right? Like, even if they feel like they look, they would fit in, right? Because you said, I don't look like anybody there. But I have friends that they look like everybody else in the room, right? But um, they still feel, I think, and this is what, my hope for black people is, is that, you know, some of your fears of not fitting in, I feel like we're right though, just because I feel like as black people, we're just now moving to this space of, I feel like accepting different types of blackness because I feel like growing up, at least where I grew up, I grew up in inner city Chicago. So blackness looked a very specific way. And if you did not look that way, it was not, you were, it was put into question. And I said like, I am a fully black person and people question my blackness at different times because of things that I did based on where I grew up. It's like, wait, what, like what is happening? And so, um, but I think that we're moving forward and, and expanding and it's encapsulating more and we're realizing we're not a monolith. And so um, I feel like some of those fears were like rooted in true, like, like, un like I, I understand. And I think at some points I have been the perpetrator of that feeling. Like oh, yeah. I have been the person who would make, might make someone like you feel like they don't culturally or like belong because you haven't been around black people and so then i'm like well why this why that and and i'm glad that i'm not that way anymore um but i definitely think at, at some points in my own journey i have been a black person who would have contributed to those fears and who would not have been like open to the idea of like just my black experience isn't the only one that exists in the world mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I like what oh, you God. said about that. Oh, no, you're good. No, I was just going to say, like, I I like how you address that. Like, I think sometimes, like, it's important to remember that, just, you know, like, the acceptance and everything. But I also know that, for me, I also needed to do some growing at that point, right? Like, I needed to, I, I think there was, like, there's a part of, like, me not coming to terms with myself for some reason, well, mm -hmm. for lots of reasons, but... <laughs> But I just, I knew I needed to do that growing and I'm glad I was able to do that um, over the next few years as it happened. Cause you know, like that fear of not fitting in that I experienced was just kind of like in my own head. It wasn't necessarily like admitting from the room cause I hadn't even walked in yet. You know, mm -hmm. like right. just, it was just like my lens of the world. I was just, first, I was not creating that connection with myself when I should have, I should have just 
I sh- wish I would have been to gotten to that understanding. No, that makes sense. I think I just like I can't help but think of that Kendrick Lamar song, you know, where he says like you ain't gotta lie to kick it. And like mm-hmm. that is how I like was kind of how I felt as I tried to get into the Black Student Union. I went to a couple meetings uh, my first few years at BYU and just didn't really feel like I fit in. I went to perspectives every year that I was at BYU and I really enjoyed watching, but I was, and I, every year I'd be like, yeah, okay, next year, I'm going to, I'm going to do the step team next year. I'm going to participate. And then, you know, January would roll around. They'd be like, okay, we're, we're doing, we're doing gospel choir practice this week. We're doing step team this week. And I'd be like, mm, I don't really want to go. I don't want to get made fun of. I don't know. And I think once I kind of found that group of people through the seminar and through um, just talking to people, um, to other black people at school, I realized like, oh, I don't have to, like Nate said, I don't have to be a certain way. I don't have to have seen the color purple, even though I have seen the color purple. It's really good. Um, <laughs> but like, I don't have Listen, to act a certain way. Like I can, I can be, <laughs> I can be the black, I can be black the way that I am. And like, I will find people that I can connect with um, in, in that space. I think like, that's something I, like Rachel said, I think the black community as a whole is, is kind of cultivating that now. I think there's, you know, on TikTok, I see it all the time. There's this podcast called black people love Paramore and like these black <laughs> nerd podcasts um, all over the place. These communities of people that, yeah, like this just community of black people being like, we can be black and like these things that people might not associate with us and still be black. Absolutely. It's funny that you that you brought up that specific thing because I just posted a video of Haley Williams doing the crip walk on my story today. <laughs> so Haley Williams is black. I I, yeah. I don't know. She she's on our team. For That's sure. what the whole video is about. It's like a black dude or it's like a white guy. And he's like, man, we lost Haley Williams, and we got who do we get in return? Kanye West and Candace Owens, and it's like a black dude. <laughs> And he's like, okay, now here's who you can keep, and here's who we get to keep. And then he like goes through the list. He's like, y'all can keep Jack Harlow. And it was pretty funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's like, y'all, y'all can keep y'all can keep Joe Burrow. We we'll take uh we'll take Travis Kelsey. Like, it was a funny video, so go check it out. Um, I wanted to ask another question because this is something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, or actually, Rachel, did you have a question? No, go with yours. Okay, I cool. go with yours. Yeah. I, so I just wanted to ask, how did being a member of the church affect your uh, your black identity? Because I know. Like I'm not a, a biracial person, but I, I would say that probably like the closest experience that I've had to being biracial is being a member of the church because uh, the church is so inherently white culturally. And then, you know, like from its like origins almost um, and, you know, a lot of the decisions that have been made, even though there were black people there at the beginning, the history that the church has, has chosen to go with has been like an overwhelmingly white history. And so I feel like... Um, with being a part of something that is considered so white within American culture and then being a black person within that black people outside of the church have a very specific, um, per, um, what's the word I'm looking for? They have a, they perceive us a certain yes, way. Tell them where, mm-hmm. You tell them you're LDS and you're black. They're like, what? Right. They, they don't see those two as going together. And I actually just read an article. Um, it hasn't actually been published yet, so maybe I shouldn't talk about it, but it basically oh. talks about like that feeling of two-ness um, mm. You know, so I, I wanted to ask you, how did being a member of the church and then also being a biracial person kind of affect um, 
your your identity and and like your journey through that so so growing up in Ottawa a lot of information about the church was hidden from me is what I would say um and just kind of a lot of like church history, um, specific, like the priesthood ban, like it was never really brought up. And it's kind of something that kind of brought me shame once I realized, once I learned it, I was, I think I must have been 17 or 18. I was old <laughs> for not knowing about this. Um, and so kind of that brought a lot of struggle for me, um, being biracial and learning that. Okay, so I'm going to be super honest, basically kind of what I came to terms to later on in life was that a lot of people who I grew up with, who were really close with me, um, in coming to BYU, lots of members of the church, they have racist thoughts and they don't even realize that they're racist a lot of the time. And they kind of show these in, like, they can be in church, it can be at church activities um, by saying those, like, little comments that don't, like, come across as racist, maybe. But if you like actually stop and think about what they're saying, you're like understanding like, oh, you're <laughs> you're just like hating on people that don't look like you or people that don't have like as deep as a history and as churches white people do. Mm-hmm. And kind of what it did was for me, I don't know how much being biracial kind of affected this. Basically what happened was I got, um, I kind of struggled, right? I struggled immensely with, the thought that I'm a member of this church that has so many racist events still happen, um, has a racist past, has a bunch of, you know, like incredibly controversial subjects that like have never really been addressed. And if anything, it just created like a big conflict within myself and within like that development of finding my racial identity, um, it created a huge conflict just because I was, you know, I was like trying to come to terms that like my identity was who I was and who I am, sorry, <laughs> who I am. And it doesn't matter like how I act, but then this like huge part of me, right. Cause I've been a member since I was born um, was like incredibly conflicted because I didn't know how to feel about all this information coming to me about my religion that I had. And so, I mean, I don't really have a answered like to end it with all it has honestly done is just create more conflict within my thoughts and myself and my relationship with the church I think that's a really great way to put it um I think of it kind of like this cognitive dissonance like I'm struggling between like this learned behavior that I have and being a member of the church and like this innate sense of who I am as as a black person I think for me um my like my black experience and my experience in the church are like intrinsically tied together having after having served a mission in Africa um it there's a lot of really great experiences there and there's lots of reflection that I've done as I've been home you know I've been home for I don't even know how many years now um but I kind of look back on it and think like huh there's a lot of you know colonialism vibes coming from from that experience um and kind of like tony said like it's just you kind of start to as you learn more things and you start to look back on your past and 
some of these people that you might have like church members that you might have held in really high regard as as a youth as a as a young adult um really start to fall from their pedestals as you kind of unearth you know with like past church leaders like unearthing like like actual acts of racism and racist quotes and and racist doctrines and racist practices and then with like church leaders that you interacted with on a personal level like young men's leaders young women's leaders um people that you felt like you were safe with as a as a youth as you kind of grow up and stay friends with them on Facebook and see the way that they talk about movements that are happening today, you go, hold up, wait a minute. Like you were the one that was teaching me about brotherly love and, mm-hmm. and, and the gospel of Christ. And you aren't recognizing how those like civil rights movements today are tied to that same gospel. Um, and that's, what's been really hard is like, you know, you feel like you're losing a whole community that was part of who you are for so long. Um, and it's really hard to, to kind of reconcile the two. I think something that's been special for me is I recently, like I said, I moved to New York and I now attend an award in Harlem. Um, and so it's really cool to see um, some diversity in the ward here, but for the most part, it's still pretty white, which is really jarring. I think for me to, you know, as you walk around Harlem, there are tons of black people around and then you go inside the church building. And while there is way more diversity in this Harlem ward than I've ever experienced in, you know, a a Utah ward or a ward in Texas, it still makes you go, hmm, like this church really is just really, really white. And it's just kind of hard to wrap your head around that. And like, kind of to, like Tony said, it, it creates a lot of conflict um, in myself. I told my dad a while ago, like, um, like I've gone through a faith crisis trying to figure out where I am at with the church. And I, I kind of told him, I was like, as an American, I don't feel good about leave, leaving institutions because of a, of a history of racism. Like, cause that's America. Like I'm not gonna renounce my American citizenship So the church's past history of racism is something that I can study from a historical context and and make do with. Like I can kind of understand where where it's coming from, not accept it, but understand like those people were racist and that's why this happened. Um, And society at the time was racist, so it allowed it to happen. Um, What I really struggle with is like Tony said, like the effects of the, that racism, that past racism and current racial issues still affect the church today and the issues that I have with the church stem from the fact that I don't feel like they're doing enough to address those those issues and so that's what kind of creates that conflict for me. Joshua I like how you brought up the Facebook post because that is and and these these people they just they will say whatever they want on Facebook and then and then they'll come into your your private messages and be like I'm going to pray for you or you were such a good young man. I know that you'll understand. And I'm like, no, I am a fully grown adult. I, I don't need you to tell me what's wrong and what's right here. We have uh, someone who used to go to BYU. He used to write these cryptic messages on Facebook to like antagonize people. Um, More like, you know who I'm talking about, Nate. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You should too, Joshua. Um, and he would just in the comment, when I tell you the comment section, I have 200, 300 comments. 
because he would just say stuff to make white people mad from his board and like he would do it and literally these people would go crazy like when i tell you they would go crazy like i would it was like watching a show for me to read these comments because it was like all of his old leaders and like people he met on his mission companions who just like it would he would literally just rile them up and it was just so crazy how quick people would show how racist they are um in a facebook comment section it was the craziest thing I would ever like it was just crazy to <laughs> read it and they're commenting this on a black person's post yeah mm-hmm. we even I'd got get the popcorn out for those oh, uh, those were great those were so good <laughs> I used to be in the trenches back when I was obsessed with fighting on Facebook when I was in that stage <laughs> of my life yeah that was that was a good time good times uh, <laughs> yeah. man oh man well I think unless we had anything else we could wrap it up there yeah because we've already hit an hour so yes that flew by it was great talking with y'all no it really did was there anything else that y'all wanted to express get off your chest you want to cuss Let somebody the world out know. <laughs> no i think i'm good i think i'm good okay All thank right. you for having us i i appreciate it i think i can't wait to hear it listen to the podcast now yes Absolutely. yeah we, we have one thing left Sorry, this oh, yeah. is what we, yep. do. we definitely do. Yes, we have one thing left that we do at the end of every show. We do recommendations. Me and Nate will go first so that you two can marinate on it and figure out what you want to recommend to everyone. Um, but yeah, it's any recommendation. There's no boundaries. To, when I mean no boundaries, I have recommended all types of stuff. So um, my recommendation for the week is to go on Facebook Marketplace and Facebook Marketplace, this is my app. I like shop there like it's a um like it's a freaking normal app for a clothing store. But honestly, when I do it, sometimes I think, you know, I'm really helping the environment. It like seriously, like it's actually good to like reduce waste and like buy stuff off of people that's like gently used. And so I highly recommend like instead of unless you really, really need something brand new. I recommend going and looking on Facebook Marketplace to get something used uh, or lightly pre-owned because it's just better for the environment and it'll also save you money um, because people normally sell stuff for cheaper. So mm-hmm. that's my recommendation for the week because I feel I feel like a good little environmental girl when I do it. My recommendation for the week, I will keep it real simple. I watched a movie the other day. Nate, you always watching movies. I'm always watching movies, and yet I never, I never seem to. Anyway, <laughs> people be recommending stuff to me, and I never watch that. But I always been watching a little something, something. But anyway, I watched this movie the other day called Prisoners, um, and it was a cool movie. It was about. It was actually very intense. It was called Prisoners. It's uh, starring Jake Gyllenhaal and Hugh Jackman. And Viola Davis and Terrence Howard. It was an interesting combination. That's, right. Yeah, I'm like, that's quite the combination. Yeah, and Viola Davis and Terrence Howard were a couple. So I was like, it was, it was interesting. But anyway, it came out in 2013. Okay. And it's about um, these two little girls that get kidnapped. And then um, Hugh Jackman is the dad. Jake Gyllenhaal is the detective who's like assigned to the case. And it's like about them trying to find the girls before time runs out. And it is a very good movie. It'll take you along. So it's on Netflix right now. It's called Prisoners. Okay. That's my recommendation for the week. Joshua, you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go. Um, those who know me well know that I pride myself on watching a lot of TV. The last two years, I've watched over 100 seasons of TV Ooh. each year. 
So each year, my, hey. each year, yeah. This year, this year, I watched seventy-four different shows. So I don't understand, but so this. So my recommendation has to be something from TV. Um, I'll give you two shows. You can pick and choose. Both comedies, I think. Um, the first one is The Righteous Gemstones on HBO Max. If you're looking for a, a religious comedy to kind of poke fun at some of the ridiculousness that is uh, evangelical Christianity, I definitely recommend The Righteous Gemstones. And if you're looking for a you know, family fun, but also kind of pretty good, I call it good trash television because it's not great, but it's fun. Uh, Ginny and Georgia on Netflix um, um, is really I good. Love I just finished seasons one and two, and it was it was pretty cute. I, I enjoyed it. It was one of those that you can't stop watching, but you know you should stop watching at some point. But you're just like, I'm gonna keep going. Here's the thing: Joshua is a harsh critic on TV shows and um, movies. I showed him a movie one time, and he literally, after he watched it, he was like. That was fine. I was like, damn. Okay. <laughs> like, was it? I was literally like, wow. And I was trying to show it to him because you know he was going through a hard time. And I thought it would be like a good, like sentimental movie. And he put on his movie critic hat. And I was like, Listen, listen, <laughs> I I still think about that movie. It was good. I was good. I just wasn't ready to appreciate it then. I appreciate okay. it now. Cause yeah, Joshua has a harsh critic, y'all. It is no joke with him. But I'll watch anything. You I'll watch anything. Watching a hundred seasons of TV per year. <laughs> exactly. I thought I was doing something. <laughs> hey Tony, what about you? Okay. Um, so what I've thought about is honestly, this last week I went on this walk and it was just a super simple walk, but I just walked around, walked a mile, and I got home, and it was amazing, because I just felt so relaxed. I didn't think about anything. I just put on some music, and I just took a walk outside, and it was freezing, but when I got home, I realized how great I felt and how I would like to do it again, not that that, that time, because it was freezing outside, but um, honestly, I was just going to say never underestimate the power of a walk, <laughs> sometimes by yourself, with a friend, anyone. Um, I always recommend that just to, you know, take some time. And maybe you can listen to this podcast while you're on. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Good stuff. All right. Well, that's all we got for this week. Appreciate y'all listening, and we will catch you later. That's the show for today. We were super excited to be able to talk with you about the wonderful topics of the Black Menace podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at the black menaces and subscribe to our patreon the menace society for bonus content and footage of both the podcast and our videos we look forward to hearing from y'all in our email you can email us menace moments and other questions that you may have for us be sure to email black menace podcast at gmail.com to get those menace moments and questions flowing into our inbox we'll answer you on the podcast and respond to you in the email and remember always be a menace. Thank you, guys. <laughs>